Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hi, everybody. Chad Madden here, and welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Today, we have a a very special guest that I'm super excited for, Dr. Jason Saunders. Uh, Dr. Jason is a by trade a chiropractor, also a private practice owner. He's also uh, the founder and uh, currently owner of HBOT USA. We'll talk more about that. He's written uh, several books. The first is Wellness to the Core. Um, the second one is Oxygen Under Pressure, which uh, for personal reasons, I became extremely interested in. The other thing that, uh, Jason, you, you didn't ask me to say, but uh, I reached out to you as pr- predominantly a patient through a mutual friend and you were willing um, to hop on the phone with me right away and talk me through exactly uh, what HBOT is. Um, you're considered the industry expert here. So um, I'm very appreciative of that, but welcome to the call and super excited to have you here. Thanks, Chad. Yeah, love to be here. And as you know, I mean, if I could help somebody understand this at a better level, either from the patient side or the practitioner side, you know, I just, I really obviously am passionate about hyperbaric and whatever I can do to help push the industry forward, you know, I'm always game for. So awesome. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. And so you're, you're tuning in from Miami right now. I understand that you're uh, furthering your education, uh, getting at least a, another degree or so. Can you talk about what you're doing right now in Miami? Sure. So glutton for punishment, um, <laughs> wanting to really, you know, I teach at this point, I teach hyperbaric medicine all over the world. Uh, I get a lot of questions, as you can imagine, with, you know, how does this thing work? How do we know that it works? Hey, what about these soft chambers? Do they actually work? Do I need a hard chamber? What's better? High pressure, low pressure, all these, you know, you can imagine all the questions. Um, some of the answers we know, and a lot of them we don't know, and and most of them we're really expanding on over the last couple of years. And so, one, to answer those questions, but two, to further the research, I went ahead and I started a program for a PhD in molecular biology with a concentration in regenerative medicine. One, because I really wanted to get to that cell level, the DNA level, the, the molecular level of exactly what is hyperbaric actually doing. Uh, but two, to help me do some research to really try to push the field forward. And so we're actually just finishing up our first research project literally as we speak. Nice. Are you allowed to talk about what that is? Sure. So, you know, what I wanted to do as an initial step, and there's a lot, there's probably more questions that are going to come from this research than answers. But uh, what we really wanted to do is we looked at um, basically mild pressure. So soft chambers go up to a pressure of 1.3 atmospheres. A lot of the research done in hyperbaric over the years has been at two atmospheres or more. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to say, hey, here's a, a like two arms, a 1.3 arm and a 2.0 arm. And then what we did was we, we did basically five weeks of uh, treatment, a one-month break, and another five weeks of treatment. And we checked everybody baseline. We checked everybody after the first round of treatment. We checked everybody after the second round of treatment. And then we checked everybody about six weeks after the second round of treatment. And we're measuring things like uh, 48-panel cytokine test, growth factors, hormones. Uh, we're looking at uh, epigenetics, like methylation panels of epigenetics. We're looking at telomere length. And then we're looking at a computerized cognitive assessment. And we're just trying to say, hey, over what period of time do which of these changes happen at which of these pressures, just to start the process of one, validating the mild pressures, um, and two, trying to compare and contrast what we should expect on a timeline between the two. Awesome. And I, I assume all the other variables other than atmospheric pressure were the same same 
treatment dose in terms of time and frequency and everything else in the two groups. Exactly. And then, you know, they had to be non-diagnosed. So these were, you know, I'll call it, we, we call them healthy, but we know that they're probably not, but uh, at least asymptomatic, non-diagnosed. Um, and, and basically, you know, if they took supplements, they had to keep with the same supplement regimen. If they exercise, they had to keep with the same exercise regimen, same diet, you know, no other, you know, marked lifestyle changes throughout the three month process. Okay. Love it. Uh, first question for you. Um, can you go through and just explain for all of our listeners to our private practice owners, what is HBOD, what is hyperbaric um, oxygen therapy, and then also share how you got into it and how you discovered it. Yeah. That's a long story, right? <laughs> it's a good one. It's, it's worthwhile though. Yeah. So hyperbaric oxygen. So every, every cell in our body, except for the red blood cells that carry oxygen and deliver it, every other cell type in your body requires oxygen for normal function. And everybody knows, you know, you go to the doctor, they put the pulse oximeter on your finger. If you have nothing wrong with your lungs, you have nothing wrong with your heart, you should expect virtually as close to 100% saturation as possible. Meaning right now we're all carrying about as much oxygen as we can possibly carry. But I look at it more like a vitamin. There are times where you take, you know, say the RDA of a vitamin or the, the optimum dose of a vitamin. And even if you're getting the same amount or the right amount of that vitamin over a long period of time, you, you could assume that there might be periods of time where you want to megadose that vitamin. In other words, you're getting vitamin C every day, you're taking vitamin C, and then you know you think you might be getting sick. So you, even though you've been taking a normal amount of vitamin C this whole time, now you're taking higher levels to really promote immune system function, let's just say. So hyperbaric is the same thing. What I would say is that you're already carrying though as much oxygen as you can. So there's really no there's no significant way to increase how much oxygen we're carrying because we're limited to the amount we're carrying based on the health, the quality, and the quantity of our red blood cells. The only appreciable way to increase oxygen beyond red blood cell carrying capacity is to change atmospheric pressure. So we all have an experience where you've gone to altitude, maybe to Denver, or you've gone on a hike, and it feels harder to breathe. And then we say, well, it's harder to breathe because there's less oxygen. And well, there is, but it's not a percentage difference. In other words, the air you and I are breathing right now is 21% oxygen. The air on the top of Mount Everest is 21% oxygen. However, you can't breathe at the top of Mount Everest easily unless you had extra oxygen. It's not a percentage loss. It's a pressure loss. So as you go up in elevation, you lose pressure. And as a result of the losing of pressure, when you breathe in, you're breathing in less number of molecules of oxygen which leads to less driving of oxygen into your circulation. What hyperbaric is doing is it's mimicking below sea level pressures. In other words, it goes from sea level and then we start going below sea level pressure. And what that does is it makes sure that every breath you take has even more molecules of oxygen than what you're normally getting at, at, uh, at sea level, let's say. And as a result, you could increase the driving force of oxygen well beyond what you and I are getting right now. And, and instead of oxygen only going into the red blood cells being carried by the red blood cells, this, this extra oxygen is basically being dissolved in the fluids of your body. So the plasma of your blood, your CSF, you know, cerebral spinal fluid, your lymphatic fluids, it's basically being dissolved in your fluids and then it's being delivered to your cells and tissues at a much higher level than what we could do relying on our red blood cells alone. So um, you know, that's kind of a basic overview. When I was, I think, 26 years old, I was practicing full time and my wife and I bought a house and we were going to just remodel the house and flip it because uh, we were bored. And um, 
So I'm remodeling the house, bathrooms, kitchens, and I got to the roof. And so I'm putting a new roof on this house. I'm doing it all myself. I'm doing it by hand and literally like a hammer and nail. I didn't even have a nail gun at the time. And I'm carrying uh, squares of shingles up and down a ladder, throwing them down on the roof. It was basically the middle of December, New Jersey, so it was pretty cold at the time. And one of those squares I threw down on the roof and I immediately lightning bolt, you know, my back down my leg um, and I blew a disc in my back on that roof. Hobbled my way somehow down that ladder and, um, you know, needless to say, I was in pretty bad shape. Long story short from that, you know, I'm a chiropractor. My wife's a chiropractor. She's treating me. My background is exercise physiology and nutrition. So like I'm eating all the right things. I'm taking natural anti-inflammatories. I'm getting acupuncture. I'm getting chiropractic care. I'm doing all my rehab exercises that I have been teaching people for years. And, you know, I considered myself really good at helping people through disc issues. And here I was, you know, having to work myself through one. And I'd say within about two, three weeks, the, the pain in the back uh, completely resolved and I was working again. But I was left with a, a complete drop foot in my right leg, my right foot. And uh, we were training for a triathlon at the time. And so, you know, I couldn't even, I could barely walk. I was literally dragging my right foot along the way. And so six months later, nope, no change. A year later, no change. Uh, 18 months later, still complete drop foot in my right foot. And at 26, I'm like, you know, I'm a little disappointed in myself. I'm like, I think I know how to, I've helped so many people with this issue. And I can't even get myself out of this problem. You know, I started really second guessing, honestly, even what I did for a living. Uh, we happened to be at a big conference, like a big chiropractic conference, you know, the big vendor hall, all the new toys and gadgets and all the things. And um, they just had these these tubes that were pressurized tubes. I had no idea what it was. It just looked really interesting to me. And they were doing practice sessions. I said, hey, could I jump in there? So uh, they said, sure. And I, they didn't know anything about what was wrong with me at the time. I just, and I had no intention that it would ever help me. I was just wanted to see what it was. And so I got in there, I spent about 20 minutes in that tube. Uh, they pressurized it. I hung out, they depressurized it. I got out and about 15 minutes later, I'm walking around the vendor hall and I started getting, you know, um, like pins and needles in my foot. And that was basically the first time I had even felt that foot in about 18 months. And I'm thinking, Am I getting, what is that? Like, why am I getting tingling in my foot? Does that have something to do with that tube I was just in, you know? And so I go to speak with the sales rep. He's like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, no, that's what it does. It helps regenerate nerves and this. I'm like, you have right. You're just trying to sell me your tool, you know? Like, um, anyway, so he, he agreed. I did about, um, I did almost eight hours that weekend in 30 minute increments multiple times a day throughout that conference. Uh, and I left there with about 15, 20% recovery in my foot. And so- that was enough to convince me. I ended up, I did buy one, <laughs> uh, brought it home and I just treated myself. And within a couple months, I had a full complete recovery of that drop foot. That was the only thing I had changed in that time. And after 18 months of nothing and doing as many things as I can think of, you know, clearly I was, I was pretty impressed with that. And so that's really where the journey began, where I started saying, you know, how did I get so, I mean, I was only 26, but you think you know everything, right? So I was like, how did I get so far in my life? And nobody at any point was like, hey, you need to try hyperbaric oxygen. Yet that was the thing that fixed it. And so, you know, it made me really figure we need, we we clearly don't know enough about this tool. We need to figure this out. And, you know, that kind of sent us down that road. Yep. Uh, love the story. Um, I, so in my own journey, TBI, we can talk more about that later, uh, but went to the Amen clinics, had a brain scan, concussion last year, uh, the 
clinician who I saw, uh, one of our physical therapists said, you have central nervous system lesions. Like you need to go get a scan, got the scan. Number one thing they recommended was uh, HBOT, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I picked up your book right away mm. um, at the, after I heard you on, uh, Ben shared the episode, Ben Greenfield shared the episode that you did with him. And I, I read your book. Um, it's amazing. So for every, anybody who's listening to this, if you're a clinician um, and you have a research background and you're like, you can relate to uh, Dr. Jason's story or my story and you want to learn more, the book does an amazing job. You put a lot of work into that. Uh, I think there's over a hundred citations at the end and you go through 10 different, at least 10 different diagnoses uh, that are all indicated for uh, HBOD and where the research is at. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for doing that. It, the the other, you wrote another book, Wellness to the Core. I haven't read that. What is what is that about, and when did that come into the picture? So that was earlier on. So um, before twenty six. Oh, before twenty? No, not before twenty six. Before I wrote uh, Oxygen Under Pressure. So I Got wrote you. that first one. I think in, I think it was two thousand fourteen. Okay. And really, what that is, that's a uh, to me. And you understand this too, and anyone who's a practitioner understands this. There's, there's like the conversation. So we did a lot of different modalities and treatments in our in our clinic, and um, even within the clinic, we have chiropractic, massage, acupuncture, hyperbaric, functional medicine, laser. You know, all kinds of different modalities. And you know, the the purpose here is to say that there's not a single one thing that any one of us can do that fixes all of the problems. And even if we have multiple modalities and practitioners. You know, we're never going to be able to solve everybody's issue, but having a, a broad toolbox and understanding the different interactions between different types of practitioners and being able to work together and, you know, co-treat under a, whether it's under a physical location or at least under some sort of um, rapport with other practitioners, like we can get a lot done when we can all work together. And that book to me is a reflection of the conversation I would have with patients all the time about you know, whatever they're coming into me for, it's not probably not the first time they had it. And even if it is the first time they had it, it's not because of the thing that they think that happened. In other words, simple example, they blow their back out, you know, but they blow their back out because they dropped a pencil and went to go pick up the pencil. It's not like the pencil was so heavy and they, you know, they had a series of issues that presented themselves at a altogether at the right time or the wrong time, however you want to think about it, that led to a moment that they assume that the injury happened because of that moment. And my opinion is with rare, with rare exception, it wasn't that moment. That moment just happened to be the proverbial straw, but there's a series of issues in their body, let's say physically, emotionally, whatever, that have all accumulated to lead to that, that moment in time where the, the actual issue happens. And then in medicine, in any kind of medicine, whether it's physical medicine or, or, or traditional medicine, whatever it is, you know, we have this tendency, or I should say insurance companies especially, have a, have a tendency to want us to get people back to um, pre-injury status, right? We have to work them into getting them to pre-injury status. And my opinion is getting anybody to pre-injury status is only getting them to a subpar place that led them to getting injured in the first place. Yeah. And so if all I do is ever take somebody back to their point of asymptomatic existence and a, what I would think is probably not an ideal scenario, just asymptomatic, 
I'm really just leaving them vulnerable to have their next issue. And so we always tried to have conversations like that to say, listen, you know, this is your active point of care and you have this problem and we certainly want to get you out of that problem. But not only that, do I want you to get to a place and it's up to you to help guide me as far as you want to take this, but I'd like to get you to a place not only pre-injury status, I want to get you back to a place of, you know, more resilience, more adaptation, more strength, you know, to a place where you can actually be far more functional than you were well before you had this injury. And so understanding, I think, the three-dimensional or the multi-therapeutic sort of outlook on how do we start putting those pieces back together, you're not in pain anymore. You're actually feeling pretty good. However, not all your systems are firing you know, on all cylinders. And so how do we start taking somebody and explaining, you might not feel any better. In other words, if you feel good, it's hard to measure how much better you're getting other than to see it in other areas like the way you sleep or how well you move or what uh, what amount or type or you know exertion could you promote in the gym? And all of a sudden you see these other changes, these other growths. And so wellness to the core is really a conversation that helps people understand sort of that bigger picture, how all the different areas in our life intersect to cause most of our problems. And that we have to also look at, you know, even though you had a back injury, you know, we might have to look at some of your emotional stress because emotional stress is going to add to you know, stressing out your nervous system, making you more vulnerable to injury, you know, and so it's really helping people sort of expand that thought process to how they got where they got and how to get where they really want to go. Great. And what's the best way for our listeners to find either wellness to the core or oxygen under pressure? Yeah, um, both, both are still on Amazon. So if you Great. search either one of those titles, they're both there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, yeah, I think I read Oxygen Under Pressure on Kindle, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. via Amazon. Cool. Um, so you had this life-changing experience, 26 years old. You discover HBOT. Why has nobody ever talked about this before? You then, you get a unit, you go back to New Jersey, start treating yourself. How did you make the bridge or the thought process to, or make the jump, the leap of faith to include that in your practice? How did you start implementing that? So at first I didn't, you know, at first I'm like, okay, that was good. And then, um, you know, I thought I'd use it on myself periodically. Uh, my stepdad was, uh, at a similar time, he was diagnosed with primary progressive MS. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, listen, that's a, that's a pretty tough diagnosis. Uh, you know, I had a neuropathy. It helped my neuropathy. He has a neuropathy. They are not alike at all. The pathophysiology of my neuropathy was a, you know, was a physical injury. His is an autoimmune disease. I mean, they couldn't be more different other than the fact that I had a problem with, like, that's how I simplified it in my mind. I said, I had a nerve problem. He has a nerve problem. It helped my nerve problem. I don't think it could hurt his. There's very little research. That means 17 years ago already. So, you know, very little research at the time on any of that. And so, but I said, let's, you know, I'd like to try it. And he was like, yeah, nah, I don't think so. My mom's like, you're going to try it, you know? <laughs> so uh, he wouldn't go in alone. So he and her went in together. We did uh, 40, 90-minute dives 40 days in a row. So that was a pretty aggressive protocol. I had no idea what to expect, but, you know, he got narrowing of his gait. The swelling in his feet went down. He got feeling back in his feet. He started walking stairs again. He started climbing ladders again. 
uh, improved cognitive uh, function, improved memory. Like it was a it was a remarkable period of time. And so that's a whole other long story too. But you know that was so now I had I had my experience, I had his experience, and then my third patient was a friend of mine's mom who had had a stroke like eight to ten years prior, and. She was like, I, I heard hyperbaric might be good. Do you think my mom would try this and that? I said, you know, it's worth a shot, you know, but it's a long time ago already. So I, I wouldn't make any promises, but I'm like, again, I don't think it can hurt. Let's try. And um, she had also amazing changes, gait, stability, uh, decrease in spasticity, increased cognition. The thing she wanted to do, she did the, you know, needle point and she couldn't see like the, you know, the, the cross stitch and get the needle in the, in the right hole each time. That was really all she wanted to get back. Uh, she got that back and then some. And so at that point, I was like, here's three completely different stories, three completely different issues, different timelines. All of them were neurologic on some level, but that was really the only common thread. Uh, but clearly, again, there's something here. And so I did bring it to the clinic. I'll be honest with you. It, it sat around and didn't do much for a while. I would still treat everybody the way I was treating everybody. And then those people that wouldn't respond to all the standard you know, therapies that I would do. I'd say, oh, you know, uh, I don't know. I got this, I got this tube of pressure. You might want to try it, you know? And, you know, most of the people that went into that chamber were non-responsive to the other therapies I was doing. And they did respond to this. And after enough of those, I started thinking, I'm like, why, why am I waiting until the non-responders, you know, show up to implement something that's just so foundational? All it is is pressure. All it is is oxygen. Like this is a very non-invasive, very safe and clearly effective because, you know, the toughest cases are responding. So I started bringing it sooner and sooner into my, um, you know, series of, of treatments. And then all of a sudden it was like I didn't need to do as many of the other things as I was doing because that laid the groundwork for a lot of the beginning um the beginning of the healing response. And so it made everything else we were doing even that much more effective. Great. The, and I, I, I do want to ask that the unit that you first had, was that similar to the Viteris 320 or some sort of equivalent where it was a soft unit? Yeah. So at this point, we do soft chambers in our offices. We do hard chambers in our offices. Sometimes we add oxygen. Sometimes we don't. We usually do. But all of these experiences so far for me were in a soft chamber, air only. There was I, I wasn't even I wasn't using a concentrator. I, I wasn't using any extra oxygen. This was a this was a twenty one percent oxygen, thirty percent increase in pressure, and that's what we got started with. And we saw amazing changes with that. Cool. So uh, selfishly, I'm going to talk about my experience here. Yeah. In terms of the business implementation. So I shared the TBI, went to the Amen Clinics. Number one treatment they recommended was HBOT. I looked around here in central Pennsylvania. There's not a lot available. I think uh, your office in Newtown Square is about an hour and a half for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, another clinic in Lancaster that does it. The, the treatment options that I had looked at were 200 to $500 for an hour for a one hour dive. Is that about right? Um, and the prescription was for a hundred of these. So I'm looking 20 to 50 K plus an hour drive. minimum drive one way. So three hours of time with my schedule, 140 employees, six kids. There was no way that I was going to be, <laughs> I did, I did not want to sign up for 300 hours over the next yeah. six months. 
So when I was looking at options, the uh, the soft chamber Viteris 320, it's a two person. Um, it provides, I, I think it goes up to four and a half uh, PSI, which is the 1.3. Um, yep, exactly. Atmospheres that you were talking about. Am I getting enough? So I, I was thinking about this and I, I'm only using it for personal use right now and allowing uh, a few friends that have some unique personal health challenges, let's call it that, um, right now to go in. But um, it, is that enough for, can you talk about how to think through that? You know, do I need a hospital grade one? Do I need a hard chamber? Um, can you talk about that? And then how do I think about as a practice owner introducing this into my clinic in a way that's successful? Because I know you have specific courses around this for practice owners and the business end of HBOT. So, yeah, question. you know, I, I think, and again, that was the reason I went back to school was to try to help people with more concrete evidence, understand the differences between soft and hard chambers. There are plenty of people who I come across, especially now teaching so much hyperbaric medicine. They're like these soft, you know, zip up bags, these duffel bags, you know, everyone's got like a negative connotation to it like that. And I'm like, listen. You know, if you grew up, a lot of people doing hyperbarics professionally, um, they sort of, you know, grew up in hyperbaric. They were introduced into hyperbarics at high pressure. So to go to two atmospheres, two and a half atmospheres on 100% oxygen, it's like, we do that all the time. It's no big deal, you know? When I grew up in hyperbaric, I grew up on a 1.3 air only. And I'm like, why would you go to two atmospheres if you don't have to? I was always taught, you know, try start with the least invasive modality and build yourself up until, you know, because you every, right, every modality is going to have some sort of risk reward, right? So, you know, and that's how I teach it. I teach to start even, even if you can, like I can go to two atmospheres in my offices, but just because I can doesn't mean every patient goes there. M many don't. I think what we're finding is that a lot of neurological issues really do better at some of these more mild pressures. You know, there's there's research on CP, you know, with basically brain damage, you know. Uh, there's research on MS. They, they go to eight feet of seawater, 10, 10 feet of seawater, which would be like the one, you know, 1.25, 1.3, up to 1.5. There's, there's a decent amount of literature starting to accumulate now in that 1.3 to 1.5 range for a really, for a lot of neurological conditions, for a lot of... Um, you know, more chronic issues. Hyperbaric is approved, let's say in a hospital setting. If you look at the list, there's 14 approved indications for hyperbaric as far as the FDA is concerned for insurance reimbursement. And virtually all 14 of them are you're either about to die or you're about to lose your hearing or your vision or you're about to lose a limb. So they're all very serious, very acute, and if we don't do this now, there's going to be some major consequences. And so in a hospital setting with that severity, you go to two and a half atmospheres on 100% oxygen. Like this is a strong therapy at those levels. And this is an acute situation. I would say that hyperbaric is this term that's used to describe everything from, let's say, 1.3 on one end to 2.5 on the other or 2.8 even on the other in some cases. So there's this wide range of pressure. And then you could use air only and you could use all the way up to 100% oxygen or something in between. So we have this variability of oxygen percentage. We have this variability of total amount of pressure. And then we have this variability of frequency and duration. What is the protocol ultimately going to look like? How many days a week for how long, you know, et cetera. 
And I believe our job as practitioners is to say, you know, here's this great tool and this wide range of uses. We need to match the intensity of our therapy to the severity of the condition, you know? And that's what we would do with every other therapy. And so, you know, I don't believe that this should be, you know, uh, um, anything different than, than that. And so that's what we've done over the years. And we try to pull, extract out as much as we can from the research what seems to be the most appropriate. And a lot of times we're still learning so much. I mean, hyperbaric's been around for 350 years. I would say the last two years have been the absolute uh, beginning of a whole new you know, evolution in hyperbaric. And really, I, I still believe we're in the, the infancy of that process. Our goal over the years has really been trying to help get more patients access. So while we grew our own practices as, as not as, as big as they can be, but you know, we, we focused on growing our own uh, patient base and trying to deliver um, as much of this into, you know, into our communities. But we were getting requests from people, hey, do you know anyone in Chicago? Hey, do you know anybody in LA? Do you know, you know, and I'm like, no, no. And then I would look them up and I'm like, no, there's nobody. Um, so we realized that if we can get more practitioners to use this therapy, well, then the, 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 you know, the ability to get patient access is going to grow exponentially because now here's a clinic that could treat hundreds of people. Here's another clinic, hundreds of people. So that's why we really started developing a lot of our teaching and our, our business programs was getting people certified, getting them to run a business and getting them to run a business that's both, you know, very unique in terms of getting patients a therapy that they need, that they can't get any other way, but then also making sure that those practices are running um, efficiently and ultimately that they're profitable. It's okay to, um, you know, have a business caring for people and to make a living simultaneously. A lot of healthcare practitioners struggle with that balance, um, but I think it's an important balance to achieve because if you have the best care in the world and nobody's coming to see you, it doesn't matter that you're so good. You, you're not going to be able to make it. And so we want successful practices, seeing lots of patients, getting a lot of people better. Great. Lots to unravel there. I, it seems <laughs> like the the first thing you were talking about was a minimal effective dose. Yeah, it, it is a pretty much a, an operating procedure. Completely agree with that. The fourteen approved indications. Anything that you've seen, Jason, that uh, insurance companies are going to open that up anytime soon, or is this primarily a cash based service? And it, it looks like for the foreseeable future, it's going to remain a cash based service. I do believe the truth is there's other, there are many other factors involved other than strictly saying, you know, do we have enough research to support this? As an example, concussion and TBI, the amount of research we have on that is a mountain high, you know? So we have the support of the literature, yet somehow it still is not becoming an approved indication. If there was another approved indication, I believe concussion TBI would be the next one. I And this is just a belief. I can't prove this in any way. But like I said, every other condition that's approved is acute, severe, and either life or limb threatening. Mm -hmm. There are no chronic illnesses that are really approved. And I think if and when they approve something like TBI or concussion, it starts to open the door to many other chronic illnesses. 
when you start looking at chronic illnesses and how often you have to treat them and for how long you have to treat them, hospitals charge somewhere between, at, on the low end, $1,000 an hour and yep. on the high end, like $3,000 an hour. So you can't justify three grand an hour for a TBI. Like, you just can't. And so you shouldn't have to because you can run that same thing for 100 to 200 bucks an hour. Um, but it, it massively changes the entire thought process of reimbursement. And so the people who generally, I think, control that don't necessarily want to see those things change. I believe that that's really more of the story than the fact that there isn't enough research because there is. Yeah, completely agree. Um, the And we've talked about that a lot. It seems like it's controversial, but it's very well known. So I, I don't think you're off, off course there. Um, other indications that you have listed in your book, uh, you mentioned uh, TBI, uh, dementia, fibromyalgia syndrome, PTSD, autism, neuro infection, cancer, uh, wound healing, CVA, if I didn't say that already. So th there are quite a few indications that there is significant research behind using HBOT for those indications. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is because it's off label, you can't run around saying, hey, I treat cancer and I treat MS or I treat CP and all these things, but, and that's not what we're doing. I don't think that's what we're doing anyway. Honestly, even with the approved indications, I don't believe that hyperbaric oxygen is the cure for uh, gas gangrene, although we use it for that. I don't think it's the cure for uh, necrotizing fasciitis, but we can use it for that. And we can even say we're treating that because it's an on-label condition. There's about 12 or 14 mechanisms of action. It's like every single human you stick inside one of these hyperbaric chambers, all these are the things that happen. Not sometimes, like these are the things that happen every time somebody goes in a chamber. The question is, which ones do you need? Which ones do I need? You know, and, and at what point should we expect those changes to occur? But the, you know, some of those mechanisms include things like angiogenesis, so new capillary growth to start nourishing a, a, a damaged area you know, uh, upregulating stem cell mobilization so that those stem cells can move into that area of trauma and start regenerating some tissue. Uh, neurogenesis, remodeling and rebuilding of neurons, mitogenesis, literally increasing the size and number of mitochondria we have in our cells to produce energy, uh, increasing the white blood cell activation so that we can fight infection more effectively, reducing inflammation. I mean, these are just things that happen because of hyperbaric. And so, you know, we can't say that we're treating, let's say, MS, but MS is a autoimmune disease. There's, you know, chronic inflammation, there's neuroinflammation, there's nerve damage, there's myelin damage. And so we know that hyperbaric reduces lipid peroxidation. It reduces the oxidation of fats. Myelin is that fatty sheath that covers our nerves. If we can heal some of the myelin, we can reduce that. If we can heal some of those nerves, we can reduce that. If we can reduce the inflammation, we can help that, right? So we can't say we're treating the disease. What we could say is here's the pathology, you know, the pathophysiology. Here are the mechanisms of action of hyperbaric. Does it make sense to apply this therapy to this issue? And I, that's how we teach our courses because we can't run around and we shouldn't run around saying, hey, I'm treating these diseases, but we can think it through logically and then clinically choose how we want to apply this therapy assuming it makes sense clinically. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll go with the caveman interpretation, which is we can survive uh, a, a, a few um, a few days without water, maybe a, a few months without ca caloric intake, food or you know nutrition, but we can make it about three minutes without oxygen. And I know um, just anecdotally from my own experience, 
the very first session that I did with HBOT that night um, on the Aura Ring, I had a 100 sleep score. Wow. I never was close to that. I had three and a half hours of deep sleep and two and a half hours of uh, REM in under eight hours, so 7.52. Um, oxygen rate was sky high. It beat every other trend that I've ever had, and that's continued to be to hold true for okay. me. Um, so completely revolutionized that. Um, my cognitive function, everything else, I used to always feel like I needed a nap in the afternoon. Um, over the last two months, that is gone. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, anything, so I, I know you're pretty deep into the research now. Um, you've published a couple papers. You've written about this deep into the research. Um, is there anything surprising in the studies that you've come across that uh, just radically changed how you're thinking about HBOT or uh, maybe, you know, a something tangential that you never thought about um, its use before? So not that I didn't think about it, it's things that I think that we were heading toward, but never had the detail or the knowledge to have the conversation and, and actually prove it, if you will. So we've always talked about in the in the field of hyperbaric, it's been talked about in terms of the dose of oxygen. So it's always this conversation of how much pressure did we get virtually? How much oxygen did we get? And what percentage of oxygen increase did we get as a result of that session? I'm going to call that the loading phase, if you will. It's the time you spend in the chamber at whatever pressure it is, and now your oxygen levels have gone this high. And we've always said, like, that's the treatment, that bolus of oxygen that is now inside your body, and that's a measurable amount, and it and it has you know certain profound effects on immune system, mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. We also knew though that it it, it improved things like stem cells and angiogenesis and and sirtuins and mitochondria and 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 some of these things are not oxygen dose related. In fact, as an example, hypoxia actually also triggers angiogenesis. Hypoxia also triggers stem cell mobilization. So here's low oxygen levels have these some of these effects that we know that hyperbaric also does. How is that possible? How does hyperoxia, hyperbaric, and hypoxia have similar effects? And so what we're figuring out now is that in the last couple of years, really, about half of the session value is the time you spend in the chamber, but the other half of the value of the session is actually the time you spend out of the chamber. So when you go in the chamber in this loading phase, you're you're filling up with all this oxygen. But imagine like a seltzer bottle, you shake it up, you open the cot tap and you know, and all this all these bubbles start coming out. So when you get out of the chamber, you have all this oxygen, a gas inside the liquids of your body. So you have this gas dissolved into the liquids and the fluids of your body. When you get out of the chamber, that oxygen is trying to get out. So as it's escaping from your circulatory system, it's not escaping your body. Your whole body is still experiencing all of this oxygen. But as those oxygen bubbles are leaving your circulation, number one, it's even more so nourishing all of the, cell, the surrounding cells and tissues at a much higher level than it did even when you were in the chamber. But it also seems to trigger many, if not all, of the same hypoxic signaling factors. So the time you spend in the chamber, you're getting hyperoxic, increased oxygen. And then the time you leave the chamber, because this oxygen is escaping, your, your oxygen sensors in your body, specifically HIF-1-alpha, gets major stimulation because of this loss of oxygen. And so it creates a very 
hypoxic-like effect without actually ever being hypoxic. And so what we're finding is you can use hyperbaric in a way where you're getting hyperoxia, but you don't have to go so far to get oxygen toxicity. And you're getting benefits of hypoxia, but you don't actually need to be hypoxic because there's consequences also of hypoxia. And so all of a sudden, if you utilize the protocols properly in hyperbaric, you can get this increased oxygen, you can get this hypoxic reaction, and you get the benefits of both and ultimately the consequences of neither. And so it really is a way of maximizing you know, cellular adaptation to changing of oxygen levels. And now we're finally understanding some of those mechanisms behind it, which that's where the research over the next few years is certainly going to be heading. Great. A uh, couple more questions as a clinician, then I want to switch over to business, if sure. you're cool with that. Yeah. Um, as a clinician, the, you know, the most common thing that I'll hear when I share that I'm doing HPOD sessions is, well, what are the contraindications? So are there contraindications? What are the risks? What's the worst thing that can happen? How do I, you know, I don't want to hurt a patient before I have somebody hop in this. I need to know everything there is to know. And I think it's a pretty short list of contraindications, but if you can talk on that and uh, chill everybody's fear out for a second, that'd be, that'd be super helpful. So there's only two absolute contraindications, uh, a pneumothorax, right? So a hole in your lung, pop lung. I used to say there's nobody walking around planet earth that doesn't know they have a pneumo. It turns out there are a few people, but there are not many. <laughs> So um, you should never have pain in the chamber. That's like rule number one. There should never be pain in the chamber. Uh, if you had somebody with a pneumothorax go in a chamber, as soon as the pressure starts building, like literally the second the pressure starts building, they would have pretty sharp chest pain. And so you would know that that's not the right thing to happen. You would pull them out. You wouldn't do any damage. But ultimately, having that cleared or having knowing that they don't have an active pneumothorax would be an important piece of that puzzle. A uh, simple chest x-ray could be used to figure that out. If you've had a pneumothorax in the past, but it's completely resolved, it's not an issue. You can definitely go into a chamber, no, no second thought. And then the only other is um, the inability to equalize your ears. So there is pressure changing, obviously, in the chamber because that's what this therapy is doing. And so you do need to be able to equalize that pressure, whether it's through swallowing or you know, a valsalva maneuver, but you have to be able to equalize that pressure so that uh, it doesn't build up and cause any ear problems. If somebody's having pain in the chamber and you ignore that or you keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, you can certainly hurt somebody's ears by doing that. And so just recognizing what it is, coaching people a little bit through the ear clearing process takes only a few minutes and avoiding that, basically avoiding those two things will avoid 99% of anything that could possibly go wrong. There's a, a list of about 12 other relative contraindications, COPD, certain cancer treatments, um, Pregnancy, technically, uh, emphysema, you know, things like this. And and in general, it doesn't mean that they can't go in. It just means that we need to understand the severity of their issue and make sure that we don't, um, we're not too aggressive with the treatment. So, you know, you might, again, just start slower with a lot of those people, pressurize them slowly, make sure that they're comfortable and... Um, you know, build the pressure over a series of treatments just to make sure that everybody's okay. The only other one that's, I guess, it's relative. Pregnancy is a relative contraindication. But in the U.S., a lot of malpractice insurance want people to just steer clear of it. Uh, from a safety standpoint, I'm being honest, like, doesn't make me nervous. I would treat pregnant women. 
In mm -hmm. fact, it's used for fertility all the time. So you could imagine if you're using it for fertility and somebody actually, you know, a couple gets pregnant, at what point did they find out they were pregnant relative to when did they stop hyperbaric and did you do a few sessions, you know, not even realizing that they were pregnant yet? Is that possible? Of course. Yeah. So, you know, again, I don't see any real downside, but it's it's always the same. It's like if you don't know and you can't prove it, insurance wants you to back away because it's just not the safety. It's the litigious nature of the world we live in. Makes sense. The... I want to switch over to business uh, from surveys, especially here in uh, Q1, as we're recording this March of uh, 2023, a lot of practice owners who we've talked with in the last few months, very much focused on uh, making up for lost revenue. So there's tremendous pressure on declining reimbursements or tightening up of cash pay with inflation, stagflation, whatever you want to call the economic environment we're in. At the same time, our cost of business are going up dramatically. For example, in physical therapy, I know in 2019, the average private practice had a margin of 14.6%. That has decreased over the last three years, and we've kind of reached that threshold of you know, anything 10% or less in terms of gross margin, we're skating on pretty thin ice. All right, so I'm a practice owner. I'm looking to add HBOT and explore it. One, how can I learn how to use it as a clinician? And then I have a couple questions for you on the business nature as well and how you think about that. Sure. So, um, where do you want to start that one? Yeah. So I'm a clinician, <laughs> I, I'm a clinician and I want to explore more. I want to learn more. How can I learn more about how you help clinicians implement this into their practice as a clinician before we talk about the business? Sure. So in terms of that, which was, you know, back when, when I realized the capacity of a chamber in terms of its influence over one, our results that we could have with our patients, and then two, the revenue in the practice, it became very clear to me that focusing on developing processes and, and marketing and a whole program around this chamber would massively change the outcome for my patients, but also massively change um, our business structure. And so that's why we ended up sort of creating a lot of the things that we've created over the last handful of years. Um, you know, we've, we have now actual certification courses. So courses that are certified by third party organizations that have been certifying people in either scuba diving or, or hyperbarics, they always come together. So people that, uh, which is funny to a lot of people, but it, you know, that world is really where they, they started together. So they, they continue to move forward together. So, um, organizations that certify practitioners in, in hyperbarics. So I teach those courses now and I wrote a course very specifically for the off-label use of hyperbarics. So for hyperbarics use in the way that I that I would practice it, that's really the course that we wrote. And so uh, we offer those courses about five times a year, um, pretty much all over the country, but also we usually do one internationally and then maybe four others, you know, across the coasts in the U.S. Uh, and then we've also developed um, actual business training and business courses that help with marketing policies, procedures, you know, intake forms, ruling out the red flags, knowing who should go, who shouldn't go, who needs to be evaluated first. Um, you know, where's all the research on hyperbaric? You know, I've accumulated, I don't know, 400 studies broken down, you know, by condition so that you have the, you know, the, the literature to support what you're trying to do in the office, whether that's for the patient or for another practitioner that's asking you those questions, you know, all those kinds of things. So a lot of that lives on, it's called the hbotcourse.com. That's where we, that's where we host a lot of that info. And so people could check that out. And then for people that are just trying to learn more about hyperbaric, like I just need to know more about this before I even like think about equipment or doing any of that. 
Um, you know, our YouTube channel, I, I think we have, um, I don't know, 200, 220 videos at this point, all on hyperbaric for different conditions or different research that's out there or, you know, just other things like contraindications, you know, all kinds of topics out there. You know, we've created videos so that people can just digest it in, in small chunks and learn more to make sure it's a good fit. You know, I don't want anyone doing this kind of thing that doesn't love it and doesn't think it's going to be a good fit. You, you really have to want to build this out for it to be successful like anything else. Awesome. We'll include links to both your YouTube channel um, and all the videos there. You do have a lot of education there. And then also the um, the HBOT course as well. Put that in the uh, those links. The So from a business perspective, I know uh, you and I talked briefly before this call about the dramatic effect that, that it can have uh, not only on our patients in terms of their outcomes, but also from a business perspective. And you can be as brutally honest here um, as, you, as you need to be. I invite you to do that. Um, so for me, you know, when I'm looking at the Viteris 320 and the way that I'm justifying it, not only to myself, but also um, with my wife, I said, you know, this is 20,000, 22,000 in the ballpark for, for the unit. Um, obviously, this is a savings to me just for my treatment alone, but then um, how, I want to learn how to monetize this. So can you talk through maybe the the business potential or how to think through that as an owner? Is my ballpark of like 200 to 500 a session, is that realistic? Um, how do I think about that? How did you calculate that? And what results are you seeing? The, the other question I want to ask you is, is this something where I'm not early enough and the market is just saturated with hyperbaric chambers all over the country? Or is there a real market opportunity here for most of us? So I'll start with that. I'll just say that uh, hyperbaric, even the business itself is definitely still in the infancy. And that includes the fact that there are not enough chambers or clinics out there to serve all the people that need it. So the opportunity for growth right now, and I say this every time I teach my courses, it's like, this is, you know, I, I just taught one a couple of days ago, like this is the best time to get involved in hyperbaric. I taught another course in January and I was like, this is the best time. Like, but every time I say it, I actually think it's even more closely aligned with being the best time. The potential for growth, the awareness, uh, patients looking for it already, not needing as much of the education directly from the practitioner. They're just looking for the place to go. And there's ways to build that out in terms of helping make sure that the people looking for you can find you. Um, so in terms of the potential market potential is like virtually unlimited. Great. In terms of the business model, the, the cost of the equipment obviously varies. There's a couple different chamber options. Um, and then there's the, you know, the hard chamber versus soft chamber options, which are also vastly different. Uh, you can, you can accomplish different things with a soft chamber than a hard chamber and vice versa. Uh, so really depending on your, your market and who you're working with and what you're trying to build out and, you know, what kinds of people and conditions you're ultimately treating. A lot of that would help generate the answer to should somebody have a soft chamber or should somebody have a hard chamber. Uh, the costs that you can uh, expect to incur would be very different. You know, a soft chamber, uh, let's say, I'll just round numbers, like a soft chamber would be around 25 grand with everything you needed. And a hard chamber could be 100 to 150, to, you know. So it's, it's vastly different that way. Uh, soft chambers, you know, the national average is probably somewhere between 150 to 175 a session. 
Uh, hard chambers are probably closer to on the low end 175, but really like two, 225 up to maybe 375 or 400, depending on where you're going. 500 would be pretty high, but it's out. I know that it is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you certainly don't need to charge that much, especially, uh, I don't know what you guys call it. We call it PVA, patient visit average. It's like the number, the average number of visits a patient is going to come to our office. Mm-hmm. Do you have a different term for that? It, average plan of care. Yeah, same idea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so PVA. So in hyperbarics, I would say that the the patient visit average for a hyperbaric chamber should be minimally, you know, twenty hours. So some people need five, some people need ten, but a lot of people do. Most people do twenty, and then a lot of people need thirty or forty. So it should end up balancing out to a minimum of twenty sessions. Um, most of the clinics that we support, I would say the PVA is somewhere between twenty and twenty four, twenty five. Let's just use some round numbers. If you were getting, you know, let's say patients were doing 25 sessions and they were $100 a piece, you know, you should understand that 10 new patients should pay for your equipment. So it doesn't take a lot to really build, um, certainly just to, let's say, break even, but it doesn't really take that much to fill that chamber and make it profitable. The real profit in the business is having multiple chambers because you can ultimately, you know, as it grows, you can have really one technician operating one, two, or even three chambers, even four chambers. So once you train and establish the systems that you're wanting, and then you have somebody that's really the primary chamber technician, you can really start to generate, you know, quite a bit of revenue when you start adding numerous chambers to to the operation. And that's where I think the real business model uh, becomes more viable. Uh, you know, hard chambers, uh, you know, busy hard chamber could be generating easily a quarter million dollars each chamber annually. Mm-hmm. Um, soft chambers, a little less than that, you know, maybe 150 to 200. But, you know, it wouldn't, it shouldn't be difficult to get a hard chamber closer to like 250 annually. And so, you know, it, it becomes, you know, you're paying somebody 20 bucks, 25 bucks an hour to operate them. And, you know, each one is bringing in 100 to 200 on average per hour, you know, and there's really not a lot of other costs outside of that. The The rest of the costs are primarily pretty fixed. So, um, and, and if it's already within your business, then it's not like you're, there's no additional like rent that you're taking on or anything like that. It's really just this, you know, business model that becomes a, um, you know, a side business within the existing practice. Great. Uh, marketing question for you. The, are you leading, is it primarily, um, in your experience, is it primarily selling HBOT to existing or past patients or are you going, are you teaching how to go directly to the cold market and lead with HBOT and then provide the other services once they're in for that? So we, we do both. We teach both. I try to get most people very comfortable with existing patients before opening it up because like anything else, you might, you know, little, I'll say mistakes or, you know, scheduling issues or policy issues. You know, you're just, you're getting used to a whole new dynamic in the office and your existing patient base is more forgiving. Mm -hmm. You have some rapport with them. They, you know, there's a level of trust already. So, you know, I always, you know, not that you're making big mistakes, but like making your mistakes with the people that are comfortable with you. And so we, we, we help people build like a, your first two to five patients should look like this. 
right? Once those are really comfortable, your next opening should be like a soft opening to your existing patient base with some conversations around hyperbaric. But at that point, many of them have already seen it, heard it, making its, you know, doing its thing and making its sounds like, hey, what is that? Hey, what is that? You know, so you start creating a buzz in the office. You start offering it to those people. And then once you're like, okay, I got this, we're in a groove, that's when we really start opening it up to the outside world. And then when we open it to the outside world, you know, the marketing is a little bit tricky because you have to be careful about making certain claims, that's for sure. And so, um, you know, we have a system or a few systems in place and we even have people like some people want to just do this on their own. Some people want somebody to do it. Like we started allowing um, the people that have been doing our marketing for the last probably 12 years um, take over for a lot of these other offices doing that marketing because he's pretty much they nailed it at this point. And so we've now we've developed like a whole network of providers. So, and we even have like a, you know, we have a locations page where the people that we've trained and that we're working with closely, especially on like the certification on the business side, you know, uh, we're, we're linking everybody together in a way that is allowing us to generate a lot of search engine optimization for newer clinics that are opening that are part of that structure. So, you know, we've, we've gained a lot of progress there. We've made a lot of, um, um, really good connections with the clinics that we're working with. And so now we're just really bringing that and broadening that so that, you know, we could have even a bigger impact as far as that goes. Very cool. Um, another, just to recognize you, uh, Dr. Mercola wrote the forward, um, yeah. to your book, Oxygen Under Pressure. I noticed that he, I believe does it in, uh, his, a maintenance program that he uses it for once or twice a week, something like that. Um, do, do you encourage programs with that as well for patients who come through, they're treated for their primary diagnosis, they've graduated their plan of care, and now they just want to continue with wellness? Is that a common thing that you, you see for long-term yeah, maintenance? It is. I would say that some people really want that. Some people don't. And that's always been sure. true. Like even in chiropractic, let's say, like we get you through the active phase, but I'm always trying to help people understand there's more to it. Some people want the more to it. And some people are like, see you next time I get hurt. Um, there's a lot of education that has to go into that conversation. And we promote a lot of that because I always believe the better you are, you know, sort of the less I get a chance to see you. And that, that might be a good thing overall long, long term. So, uh, the maintenance is varies a lot. So I do maybe one or two hours a week and then quarterly I do a 40 hour boost, right? So I'll do a really aggressive, like 40 hours in a month. And then I'll go just an hour or two, you know, a week for a few months, and then I'll do that again. So, Is that like sleeping in it overnight? Um, we don't promote sleeping in it overnight, but <laughs> we spend. I'm wondering how we get in forty. Yeah, um, a few hours at a time in the evening hours of the day. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, you could do, you know, basically, um, the best way to do that is really a ninety-minute sessions like two a day so like three 90 minute sessions a day uh broken up that would be the best way to do it but i'm also very busy got a bunch of kids i travel a lot run a few businesses trying to be a dad a husband a business you know all the things so you know i do i end up doing a lot of my hours in a chunk in the evening yes that's true um but you know some people it could be a one session a week some that's two a month you know it really totally depends on what you're trying to achieve on that maintenance basis. Some people, it's because they're athletes and they're they're in different phases of their season. And so 
you know, certain phases of the season, we're doing it a lot more because their training's harder. So our recovery needs to be greater. And then other parts of their season, they're backing off. So we're backing off, you know, so there's, there are a lot of ways to think about the maintenance program. Um, but I do recommend it to most people because I think vitamin, a little extra oxygen periodically is very meaningful to, to our system. Cool. How many children do you have? Uh, we have three. Oh, good for you. Six, 10, and 12. Yeah. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, and here's you. Th that's all right. <laughs> I, I, I won't encourage it. It's, it's not definitely not for everybody. Um, the, uh, yeah. Th so one of the things that I've implemented in there, and this is just being a, an, an aging biohacker, um, who probably listens to Andrew Huberman and Ben Greenfield too much, but I've been doing a Wim Hof literally in the chamber. And then I usually study for 30 minutes and then I, I, so that's 10 minutes Wim Hof breathing in the chamber, study for 30 minutes, and then I'll finish with a 20 minute yoga nidra, um, which is a meditation. Yep. When, when I've done that, I notice, uh, the, the lingering effects, the tail is significantly longer than if I just hang out in there. Is there anything else that you've seen in terms of combination therapies, um, that, I could be testing or throwing in there to mix it up. Uh, not not necessarily like during the time. I agree with you. I mean, I do a lot of um, reading and writing because I am very clear in there. And so I, I like that time. I'm also usually reading and writing a lot about hyperbaric. So it just seems appropriate to be reading and writing hyperbaric while doing hyperbaric. But um, so I do like the clarity. I do use it that time for that. Um, it's very important for people to know that if they're doing breath work, which is totally okay, if you're doing breath work with regard to the chamber, you breathe normally, completely, and relaxed while the chamber is pressurizing and the chamber is depressurizing. You're not allowed to hold your breath or do breath work during the time that the chamber is traveling. That would be dangerous, actually. Yeah, yeah. While the chamber is at pressure, assuming everything's okay, then you know doing things in there like that would be appropriate, and I do. Um, you know things like. You know, anytime I, I do some free diving and things like that also for fun. And so the Wim Hof breathing or just breath holds in general, I, I've seen extreme, extreme improvements in my breath holding technique as a result of training in the chamber and then training back at the surface, training in the chamber, training at the surface. So uh, I love that stuff and I see incredible benefits when I, when I do do that. Very good. Uh, we'll end with a personal question, but before we do, um, any, so other than the HBOT USA site and the other links you've shared for YouTube, what's the best way for our, our listeners, our viewers to, to find you in the world? So, um, I mean, HBOT USA is our main site. So that has a lot of also education on it. It has our, our map and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think my email is probably in there, but you could email me directly too. It's, um, Dr. Jason Saunders at HBOT USA or, our office, which is just going to be support at hbotusa.com. Uh, there's an Instagram something. We'll get that. Actually know where it is or what it is, but, and then the YouTube channels, hbotusa. Um, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we just have a lot of that stuff out there. Most of it we're just putting out because there's still so much confusion around the truth about what hyperbaric is, how it works, why it works and what it's good for. I'm just trying to throw content into the world that just helps simplify the thought process because it is actually pretty simple. And then of course, on the business side, people choose not to do hyperbaric in their clinic because they feel like it's this 
daunting task. There's so many things to have to know. So the same thing, we're just trying to simplify all that because it's not hard to do. And if you can nail it, which, you know, the people that we work with typically can, um, you know, you're offering this great therapy and now it's this whole other, you know, part of the practice that's both very effective for your patient, but also profitable for the, for the clinic itself. So I'm happy to help people get to that point. Very cool. And we'll include all those links uh, in the show notes here. Uh, so we'll end on a personal question. Uh, most profound fatherhood moment from the last 12 months. Anything stick out for you? So there's a lot there. We So we took our kids out of school uh, during COVID. We were always planning on homeschooling. Um, we were planning on homeschooling the fall of 21. And so, or the, no, sorry, the fall of 20. So, you know, when all things were a little nutty, so, you know, the virtual school and just wasn't working and all the things. So we just took our kids out. We just started homeschooling at that point. Uh, we homeschooled for about three years. This fall, when we, we moved to Miami this fall, um, for me to finish school and then for them to actually go back to school, we found a school down here that's pretty incredible for our kids. Um most profound in the last 12 months, I mean, it has a lot to do with, so when we traveled more during COVID than any other period in our life, like not just for fun, a lot of it was, you know, we were traveling for different conferences and lecturing, but usually it's just me bopping around doing my thing, you know, and occasionally the family would come. This was like all five of us were just everywhere I went, they came with me and it was an incredible couple of years. And we just made like little school adventures out of the different places where we were and, you know, try to incorporate my, my work, my, my wife is, you know, she's tied to our businesses, you know, intimately. So like what work we're doing out there in the world, bringing our kids, having them see, you know, kind of like what we're doing and why, and then building their school around it. Um, we had some really incredible experiences like that. And now that they're back in school, school, I mean, this is normal, but like school occupies like their whole day. And so, you know, I don't get the chance to see them the way we were like so together and so ingrained for so many years. Now they spend, you know, from eight to like 4.30 or five o'clock every day at school. Um, plus I'm still traveling. So um, finding that time to continue to connect with them in between all of that, because it's, you know, it's hard. You have six kids. I can't even imagine. I'm like, I want time with my wife, time with each kid individually, boy time, girl time, like there's all the dynamics of time that we just don't have. And so uh, in the last 12 months, I've spent a lot of my own time trying to figure out how to make sure uh, we don't lose that time or we could just maximize that time together because that's, that's like the only outside of helping people get hyperbaric and growing people's practices because I love that for me and for them. Like you'll, we never get our time back. We don't get our time back with our kids and the growth and the changes. And so not that I'll ever actually balance all of those things, but being really focused and, 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 um, purposeful with how we use that time and make sure we have it. That's, that's been my project in the last little bit. I appreciate that. I think that's a great jumping off point. Uh, Dr. Jason Saunders, thank you so much Thank you. for being here and doing this. Uh, this was great. And just a Wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Christine Hayes in uh, Newton Square. I know she's a big fan as well. And uh, I just had it in my head <laughs> to mention her name before we sign off here. But thank awesome. you so much for all you're doing in the world. Thank just you, Chad. 
Are you ready to take your private practice to the next level and achieve financial stability and growth? Our upcoming event here at Madden and Gilbert Physical Therapy is the perfect opportunity for you to do just that. We'll be covering the patient experience funnel and showing you how to optimize each step to maximize revenue, decrease costs, and achieve financial success. Here's what you can expect to learn at our event. At the front desk, your first point of contact with all patients that are coming through, you'll learn how to handle financial conversations with patients even when they're not covered by insurance. This will help you increase revenue and improve your bottom line. For converters or your marketers, you'll get an inside look at the conversion process and learn how to get over objections and work this system in the software. So this will help you increase conversion rates and, and boost revenue. With your actual workshop, when you're running those, you'll learn how to run workshops and close 100% of the attendees into patients. This will help you attract more patients directly from the public cold traffic market and increase revenue without spending on ads. We're going to go over partner workshops. So in this session, we'll teach you how to find ideal partners to host workshops out in your community with you so that you can get patients with no ad spend at all. You'll learn how to have conversations with partners to get them excited to promote you to their list, how to set up the campaign in our software, and how to make this a consistent process to get patients regularly. And once you have a good partner, you just put them on a schedule. We'll show you exactly how to do that. So this will help you increase your patient volume and revenue without, again, more ad spend. We're also going to teach the, the seven-step killer exam. You'll learn an exam process that maximizes conversion over to a plan of care. So this takes a person who is potentially interested in your services and converts them over to a paying patient, ensuring that each patient books all of their visits up front and completes their entire plan of care. So it's going to help you maximize efficiency and profitability in your practice. We're going to cover uh, killer testimonials. So you'll learn how to get ideal testimonials from your patients and how to make it an ongoing system that drives more referrals more word of mouth and reviews for your practice. It will help you attract even more patients and also increase revenue. We're going to go through uh, the patient interview, which is something done by a non-clinician. So this could be a, a marketer or a patient care rep um, that you have, but you'll learn how to conduct the patient interview to get valuable feedback and improve your practice. So it's going to help you improve your patient satisfaction and ultimately retention. We're going to go over our weekly team meetings. Really excited for this session. Uh, this is my partner here, Mike Gilbert, I believe will be running this uh, and showing exactly how to, helping you how to run a powerful weekly team meeting where your team presents metrics and priorities for the week. Uh, this will help you spot issues and take advantage of opportunities faster, driving more accountability in your practice, which we all want, and make it easier to manage. We're also going to cover uh, cash pay, how to add cash pay services even if you're predominantly insurance right now, you'll learn how to package and sell cash services to your existing patients. This will help you increase revenue and improve your bottom line. Referrals, uh, we're going to go over this. You'll learn how to build a system where your team is asking for referrals, word of mouth referrals regularly and at the ideal time. There is a right time to do it. You'll learn how and when to ask so it's not too awkward and get the best results. Uh, this will help you attract more patients and increase revenue. Uh, attending our event will help you optimize your processes, help you build systems, increase efficiency, reduce costs, and ultimately increase profitability. Plus, uh, since this event takes place in a real clinic setting, we're going to be right here 
in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at our main office, Madden and Gilbert uh, Physical Therapy. This is the first time in six years that we've done an event like this over six years. Uh, you and your team, you'll learn firsthand how to best set up your space for success. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your physical therapy practice, your healthcare service practice to the next level. Register now to secure your spot at this must attend event. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.